we focus on Mark Stern, um, the individual, we focus on his family, we focus on his business um, as a business, not necessarily primarily as a gallery. And if we come to the conclusion that, you know, the combination of both, you know, him, the family and the business were expect experiencing acts of persecution that lead us to the conclusion, you know, he was selling under the rest. Then we say, okay, uh, now, you know, we go out and we, we you know, look at this um, as a restitution, you know, related scenario. Welcome to Warfare of Art and Law, the podcast that focuses on how justice does or doesn't play out when art and law overlap. Hi, everyone. It's Stephanie. And that was Dr. Willie Court, lead investigator for the Max Stern Art Restitution Project. During our conversation, he gives an overview of the project's approach to restitution, as well as sharing examples of its victories and many challenges. And he shares how he sees restitution as a starting point to bring forth the legacies of individuals like Max Stern, who were targeted under the Nazi regime. Dr. Willie Court, welcome to Warfare of Art and Law. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's a pleasure. Would you describe a bit about the Max Stern Restitution Project and your work as its lead investigator? Well, the Max Stern Restitution Project goes back uh, to an inquiry that I received from the uh, trustees of the Max Stern estate about 20 years ago about Max Stern's uh, history as a German Düsseldorf art dealer um, before and in particular during the Nazi period. So the uh, estate asked me whether I had any knowledge uh, of Max Stern, uh, the uh, Jewish art dealer in Düsseldorf. Uh, and I said, listen, I have never heard of Max Stern before, so uh, I guess I have to uh, go to Düsseldorf and um, start making some inquiries. Unfortunately, um, there was also a painter by the name of Max Stern in Düsseldorf, also Jewish. So. Uh, the various places I went to initially all introduced me to the painter, Max Stern, and I said, no, 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 I'm looking for an art dealer. Um, nobody knew about Max Stern, the art dealer. Now, Max Stern was a very traditional art dealer. He was not, you know, one of those like the Cassiers or the Flecht Times, you know, who introduced contemporary art uh, to a German audience uh, in, in the pre-war period. So he sold uh, old master paintings. 19th, early 20th century Dutch uh, a German artist to a fairly uh, you know conservative audience. So I had to start from scratch um, with uh, with my research, looking for records from the Nazi period, looking for records from the post-war period in terms of any kind of restitution claims he may have uh, made because uh, there weren't many records in Canada left from uh, the pre-1945 um, or German period. Um, they seem to have gotten lost. Either they were uh, um, seized by the Gestapo um, when um, Stern was about to leave Germany, or maybe they burned uh, in his London apartment uh, during the German era. In any case, there was not much around. Uh, in the surviving Stern papers. So, so again, I started from scratch, but I was able to to put it together. And uh, it became clear that he was um, exposed to various you know, anti-Jewish measures from an early time on. And the Stern story in the Nazi period, the history of the gallery, ended pretty much in November 1938, where the remaining inventory of the gallery was auctioned off by a Cologne auction house. Uh, and the following month, in December 1937, uh, Max Stern fled uh, from, from Dusseldorf first to Paris, where his sister lived, and then to London, where he met up with his, with his sister. So uh, the, the good thing about this was that the 
November 1937 sale in this Cologne auction house, in the Lempert's auction house, um, was a sale that exclusively had Stern paintings in it. So we had a an auction catalog with 228 paintings in it, about one of them, uh, one third of them illustrated, and the other ones, you know, described in the regular fashion as we know it from auction catalogs. So, you know, we had artists, we had titles, we had measurements, we had some descriptions. So that was a very good... Uh, starting point to, uh, you know, consider any kind of restitution-related research and consider making making restitution claims. Unlike in most private collections, you know, where you have some inventory that says Dutch old master painting in a landscape with windmill and nothing else. So so it was a fairly good, good start thanks to this catalog. And there's also a second category of works I'd seen listed on the website that are um, an inventory from, it's like a separation between the auction sales and then the Max Stern Gallery's inventory from 33 to 38. So is that a separate uh, class of works that you had to um, identify without a catalog? Well, initially in Stern's post-war restitution files. And I must say he had a pretty good and thorough lawyer who happened to be a former client, we learned later on, in terms of him pursuing you know, the various opportunities for restitution claims. Uh, in those post-war files and, and in the post-war correspondence, which was still available at the National Gallery in Canada as part of the Stern Papers, Stern's correspondence with his lawyer, Stern made a distinction between his private collection and the gallery inventory, which is the way we looked at it initially. But then we learned as we moved along that you couldn't really make that distinction, that there really wasn't a a private collection that you could uh, separate from from, uh, the gallery inventory. I mean, they lived in the same house in the same building in which they had the gallery. So, you know, we assumed not, you know, unusual for art dealers that, you know, sometimes a painting in a living room was just as much for sale as a, as a painting hanging in the gallery may have been more or less considered private, you know, part of the private quote unquote collection. So eventually we had to give this up, but, um, the, the expansion that you just referred to, is something that we developed over the years because we were not, you know, pursuing a scholarly project where we were just trying to sort of document the gallery uh, inventory, but we were focused on making restitution claims. So with the 1937 auction, there was a post-war restitution proceeding whereby the German Restitution Administration and Restitution Courts um, confirmed that the sale that took place in November 1937 of those 228 paintings was a sale under duress. And that is sort of the key word um, for any kind of restitution um, effort from the Nazi period besides works of art that were obviously confiscated. There were a number of works of art that were confiscated by the Gestapo out of his moving goods, which were sitting with a forwarding agency in Cologne waiting to be shipped to London. And before uh, uh, those crates um, or or lifts were sent to London, the Gestapo came in and, and raided them and took out all the artwork. So Stern made a separate restitution claim for, for those paintings, and, and that's sort of an easy one because if, obviously if a work of art was so, uh, uh, confiscated by the Gestapo, uh, then, then uh, a restitution claim you know, is, is without a doubt. It's a bit more challenging when you go into the category of sale under duress because then you have to kind of provide more details pertaining to the circumstances. So we started the restitution project with the um, 228 paintings in in that uh, uh, Cologne auction catalog, 
and said, okay, those are the ones we, we focus on. And let's see uh, in terms of the stone history, what else we can establish in terms of um, um, you know, other incidences of persecution that Stern and his family experienced during the Nazi period. Now, let me add, you know, from, from my point of view, um, I look at these works of art that were either seized or were sold under the rest as stolen property. I mean, that's sort of the lawyer in me that comes through. Um, and, and I pursue them as such. You know, I'm not pursuing it as some sort of sad part of, you know, 20th century history. I pursue them or want to pursue them as stolen works of art, uh, just like, uh, you know, you would pursue a stolen work of art that was stolen a month ago. Not everybody shares that perspective, and, and it doesn't work legally, you know, in every country. It works in the United States uh, quite well, and it doesn't work so well over there in Europe. So, and, and the other thing that you have to keep in mind as far as the Stern Project is concerned, uh, there are no living heirs that are involved. Stern died childless, died after his wife had died, and he turned his entire estate over to what then became the Max Stern Foundation in Montreal. So I'm not dealing with grandchildren or family members that have stories to tell. I'm dealing with trustees and people who are in charge of the Stern Foundation. So it's much more of an institutional project. In fact, it's the only institutional project of that kind that I know in the world that is pursuing restitution claims, not on behalf of you know, living heirs, but on behalf of, of a foundation. Uh, which, which of you know, makes it sometimes easier, and, and but it's also different, obviously, because I'm dealing with lawyers and and you know accountants and and those kind of people. Um, so after we established, you know, our reputation, so to speak, um, in terms of pursuing the the paintings from the November 1937 auction. We were, quote-unquote, fortunate enough that one of those paintings, one of the nicer paintings, um, reappeared in a Rhode Island auction house. And it was put up for sale by the stepdaughter of the individual who had actually bought the painting um, in November 1937 at the auction. She um, married an American officer, um, after the war and moved to the United States and now as an elderly person um, put this painting up for sale, um, you know, for financial reasons, I presume. Um, fortunately, unf fortunately, unfortunately, um, the, the lady turned out to be rather stubborn and, and showed basically no sympathy, um, you know, for the Stern story. In fact, she said, listen, uh, you know, um, and I never forget that, uh, while Stern was living comfortably, so to speak, um, you know, in the 40s after he had been released from, from internment in Canada um, uh, in, in the early 40s, after, you know, she, her argument was he was living comfortably in, in Canada as a Jewish refugee while she in Germany with her family had to go through World War II and the bombing nights. So she thought if anybody, you know, could make a claim to be a victim of World War II, it was her rather than the Stern Foundation. So in any case, um, that stubbornness led to litigation in federal court um, where we prevailed, and we also prevailed on appeal. And uh, when we litigated the case, um, we had to sort of decide, are we going to focus on this painting and this transaction because we knew who bought the painting and and then I researched this individual, and it turned out to be um, that he, he, he was a medical doctor and a high-ranking uh, stormtrooper, an SA officer. So uh, we debated, should we focus on his, you know, on this individual and, and sort of his credentials as, as a high-ranking Nazi, or should we focus on, on this auction in general and, and make the argument that this entire sale was a sale of stolen property because Stern had been ordered to liquidate 
is gallery by the Nazi authorities. And therefore, we, made the, we decided in the end to make the argument by the time Stern had to basically surrender these paintings to the auction house and the auction house you know, put them up for sale because the authorities had told Stern he has to sell them, he has to liquidate it. Therefore, all these paintings were being sold under duress and under duress based on post-war restitution principles is the same as a seizure, the same as confiscation. So we made the argument in court that all those 228 paintings, not just the one that we were focusing on, but the entire lot was a, 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 an auction of stolen property. And therefore, you know, the, the, the buyer could not, under U.S. law, acquire title, um, you know, to, to this particular painting that we were pursuing. And therefore, the Stern Foundation was, uh, uh, was uh, in a position to, to claim um, the recovery of this painting because, uh, you know, ownership was still with the Stern Foundation. We prevailed in federal court and also we prevailed on appeal. Now, the, what I did afterwards, you know, after that civil litigation was, was concluded, I went to the U.S. Attorney's Office uh, at the Southern District of Manhattan, with which I had worked on, on numerous other cases uh, for, my, for many, many years. And I went to what was at the time uh, the Customs Service, and I said, listen, um, we have two judgments here from federal courts that say that these 228 paintings were sold as stolen property. Therefore, I think, you know, the remaining 227 paintings besides the one that we recovered are still out there potentially as stolen property. And as such, shouldn't they be reported to Interpol as stolen property? Uh, the U.S. Attorney's Office um, agreed with, with that assessment. And then so I went with my list of 227 paintings um, to, to, to Interpol Washington, and uh, we reported all paintings from the sale to Interpol, and uh, the ones that had images in the catalog or where we were able to find images are still out there on the Interpol website as stolen property. So that was you know, an, an important step from my perspective as somebody who wants to pursue these paintings as stolen property. And, and the Stern paintings were the first paintings from the Nazi period that a you know, German Jew lost due to persecution that happened to be out on the Interpol website, which subsequently meant that some of these paintings that showed up on the U.S. art market were simply seized by law enforcement. So we didn't have to litigate. We didn't have to have any negotiations, you know, with current possessors and so forth. We simply alerted law enforcement, and they stepped in and confiscated the painting and subsequently um, returned the painting to the Stern Foundation. So, so that's that was our sort of first major step with the 1937 sale. Then our next step was to look at, again, Stern's history before the 1937 auction. And, and we learned through research that he had been told by the Nazi authorities as of September, as of August 1935, that he had to close down his business, that he could not uh, any longer operate a gallery. Now that closing process kind of dragged on. But what was important uh, about that, that order from the authorities that Stern received it two weeks before the Nuremberg laws, the infamous Nuremberg laws were passed, which of course, you know, for the first time um, presented, uh, you know, uh, uh, legislation that, that obviously uh, discriminated against German Jews. So, so we put those two things together and, and said, this is um, apparently the period as of the late summer 1935 where Stern, you know, was, was a clear victim of Nazi persecution. 
So that was our second sort of period that we looked at. Now, I was looking for some sort of an event where that point of view that we had for this period sort of would be confirmed by well, higher authorities, so to speak. And then we had a second fortunate event, um, an Italian gallery uh, that had a painting from that 35, 37 period um, had, had, had one of those paintings in its gallery on its website. So we communicate with them. They basically, well, not basically, they ignored us. But then <laughs> they were brave enough to send this very painting to an art fair in New York. Um, you know, and we were notified by somebody, hey, listen, um, this looks like a Stern painting. So, so uh, we then went to the FBI and again, the U.S. Attorney's Office and said, listen, here is another stolen Mark Stern painting. Why do you go ahead and, and do something about it? And indeed, they seized the painting. And then, of course, the gallery, uh, you know, didn't, didn't particularly like that. And there was some sort of... Uh, you know, dialogue uh, in terms of, you know, whether that seizure was proper, but eventually uh, they surrendered the painting and uh, and in a stipulation that was then, uh, you know, signed between the U.S. Attorney's Office and the Italian Gallery, the U.S. Attorney's Office said, you know, a painting that Stern sold in 1936 uh, is a painting that he sold under duress. And, and with that, you know, language from the U.S. Attorney's Office, I had sort of this kind of confirmation that the paintings from that period, 1935 to 1937, before the Lampert's auction, were also sold under the rest and could also be pursued, um, you know, as restitution cases. Phase number three came in last summer when we were pursuing a painting uh, that uh, was in a Munich museum uh, that was also painting Stern sold in 1936. Uh, the museum um, rejected the claim, so the German government has this advisory commission uh, they set up to kind of adjudicate these kind of situations. And we had a hearing uh, last summer, and the recommendation of the commission was that the painting should be returned, and they also making a general reference to Stern's situation um, during the Nazi period, came to the conclusion that Stern was selling under duress as early as spring-summer 1933. That, that's how they sort of assessed, you know, the historical context within which he was operating his gallery. And, of course, with that recommendation, at least for the German side, um, we now basically, you know, with this third phase, this third case, uh, now, now basically cover the entire period 1933 through 1937, 1938. There were some paintings that showed up in another sale in 38, and 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 you know, for all those individual phases, we either had, as I said, you know, a court decision or or a decision by by law enforcement or a decision by an advisory commission. So so we are now sort of firm in the saddle. You know, with with that entire period, thirty three, thirty seven, thirty eight. I had read that the director of the project, Clarence Epstein, had had called that um, German advisory committee's decision a landmark case for uh, for those reasons, and had intimated that you and the project would start filing additional German museum claims. Has that already started, or is it in the works? Yes, we are. <laughs> One of the challenges that comes with this sort of, you know, phase one, two, three approach is that that obviously we have to reevaluate, um, you know, some of the earlier cases that we looked at. And, you know, keep in mind this project is now almost twenty years old, so we had looked at, at a number of paintings early on that we had sort of, you know, written off or abandoned or not pursued any further because we thought at the time, you know, we were not sort of certain whether they are claimable. 
So we have to go back, you know, to everything that we looked at, and and, and you know, have to add oh, a couple of hundred paintings, you know, for that earlier period, thirty-three, thirty-four, thirty-five. Um, you know, to give an example, there is a smaller German museum where uh, I think a handful of paintings uh, from the Stern Gallery are now housed. Um, they had they were purchased by a um, um, Stern client in um, in late '33, '34, uh, '35. Years ago, when we looked at that case, uh, we thought, no, we can't, you know pursue these paintings and, um, you know, more or less indicated to the, to the museum, well, I, you know, we don't think there's much we can do here, but thanks to this, uh, to this recommendation by the German advisory commission, um, I now have to go back to the museum and say, listen, uh, you know, uh, obviously these paintings are, are claimable and, um, and that's, uh, that's what we will do. The, Sicilian landscape that I'd read about that was also involved in litigation in Germany, has that been impacted by this change of opinion in Germany? Well, um, the the recommendations of the Advisory Commission, um, just like the Washington Principles, as you probably know, um, really only apply uh, to public institutions. Uh, that are more or less obligated, you know, to respond to such claims. Private individuals can do whatever they want, uh, in this case, or or not do anything at all. Um, Again, uh, that's the difference between the legal landscape in Europe, including Germany and and the U.S. Um, If I would have that uh, Sicilian uh, coastline, uh, in a, in a U.S. private collection, uh, the painting would long be gone. Here, the German collector, even though this painting is on on the Interpol uh, website, the German collector uh, has not even bothered to respond uh, to to our communication. Instead, um, launched a lawsuit in Germany that we uh, unlawfully listed this painting with the German Lost Art website, which is something similar to Interpol, but, but more so for information purposes only, but it, you know, it lists um, and is publicly you know, accessible uh, works of art that, that the Stern Foundation uh, you know, puts up there uh, saying that they're claimable paintings. So uh, on the one hand, the collector, as I said, completely you know, is, is ignoring us. On the other hand, he initiated a lawsuit in order to uh, remove the painting um, from uh, the German Lost Art website. He tried to do the same thing with Interpol, and didn't, that didn't go anywhere. Because, as you know, with Interpol, uh, you, as an individual, you can't report anything to Interpol. It has to go through law enforcement. So, so whatever goes on the Interpol website is, is sort of looked at by Canadian-American law enforcement agencies, and then they reported to Lyon. Uh, so there's nothing he can do there, but uh, he's still in litigation with us. He, he uh, uh, experienced a, a, a clear defeat in the first round, but now, you know, is on appeal. The case is on appeal, um, and I, I presume due to the virus situation, you know, the court proceedings have slowed down. So I think our next hearing is next January, but, uh, but that has nothing to do in the end pertaining to us uh, being able to pursue the claim. Uh, it's, it's a private collector, um, and, and we don't have any legal remedies under German law. So if, uh, if he chooses to ignore us, um, then, then there's nothing we can do. Um, obviously, I always um, make the argument here, well, every private collector you know, is not going to live forever. So, um, you know, often, as you know, after a collector dies, something once, you know, is supposed to be donated to a museum, is going up for sale, um, or is going to be passed on to to heirs, uh, who often then sell it. Um, and uh, the listing with Interpol is not going away, uh, away. So maybe, you know, we have to wait another 10, 20 years in order for have an opportunity to pursue the painting. But right now, 
uh, it's out of our reach. Does the opinion that uh, I'd read that private collector had that these were perfectly normal gallery transactions, uh, do you see that opinion shifting with things like the advisory commission in Germany with their opinion last year? Do you see that kind of attitude slowly changing uh, in the interactions you have for restitution regarding the Max Stern project? Well, my experience is, and I've been doing this for over 30 years, uh, you know, these kind of restitution discussions where they are, you know, pretend to the Nazi period or any other sort of aspect of works of art, cultural property, um, you know, these discussions are not on autopilot. They don't, they don't, you know, run by themselves. They, they, you know, always need to sort of be, be re-energized um, because I, I would say in general, the art world, you know, the museums community, the dealers community, the collectors community is not particular, you know, fond of the restitution discussion, whether it's Nazi loot or, you know, antiquities or whatever. Um, and particular, you know, with Nazi loot, because, you know, the, the, the theft goes back now, you know, 75, 80 years. And, and many of these works of art have gone through the art market many, many times. And indeed, you know, many of today's uh, uh, owners of these works of art have absolutely no idea, you know, what the history of this of this work of art is, um, because as you know, you know, the the art uh, world, particularly the, the trade, is always referred to as the biggest, most unregulated, uh, you know, industry there is. And, and provenance research, as it is taken seriously today, uh, is not something that, that has been around, uh, you know, the art world, you know, for the last uh, 70, 80 years after World War II. And there are still cases, um, you know, where, where uh, you know, people completely ignore it. I mean, I remember there was a painting in a gallery in, uh, in Liverpool, England, and the painting was so obviously plundered during the Nazi period. And they didn't bother that gallery at all. So, so you know, we constantly have to worry about, um, you know, the other side sort of sort of pushing back, and and we constantly have to work on it. And and one important aspect is, of course, political support is media support, so that people say, okay, this is not finished business. This is an ongoing, unresolved business. Um, the recommendation from the advisory commission was very encouraging. And I'm not quite sure that that the general public, particularly the German public and museums committee, real, really realized the importance of this recommendation, because it, you know, its its recommendation was not limited to Stern's situation, but it came to the conclusion that German Jewish art dealers in general, as of the summer of 1933, were doing business under duress. So that would apply to a whole bunch of other German-Jewish art dealers and a whole bunch of other transactions for 33, 34, 35, and so forth and so forth. I'm, I'm not quite sure uh, that everybody has realized the significance and the impact of, of this recommendation. And I must say, uh, this recommendation would have probably been unthinkable um, a few years ago. You may uh, remember that the, the German Advisory Commission um, just a couple of years ago um, uh, had to experience considerable uh, criticism because it had no Jewish members on the uh, commission of, of nine. So uh, thanks to political pressure, um, the German cultural minister appointed two Jewish members uh, to the commission and, and I must clearly say uh, that has changed the dynamic uh, of, uh, of, of the commission uh, and, and, and the thinking within the commission and the recommendations uh, considerably because, you know, they are taking a different, different perspective and this sort of initial, you know, sort of clubby affair, you know, within the commission sort of, you know, uh, a group of wise men and women, uh, you know, usually elderly individuals, you know, sort of high, formerly high-ranking, I don't know, politicians, judges, uh, scholars or whatever, uh, who, who, you know, 
didn't apparently have much of a significant internal discussion dispute. Uh, so that clubby affair, you know, seems to be out the window and it is, is a much more lively. And, and I can tell because we had a hearing on, on that particular painting. Um, and you could see, you know, who in the commission was, you know, asking which questions and, and how sort of the dialogue went. Um, that is a different different animal now, uh, this commission, and I I can only hope that um, they will continue on that. At the same time, um, it, uh, it it needs to be acknowledged that uh, at, at certain corners uh, that has encouraged uh, you know opposition and resistance um, to the way the commission is now handling these these cases. And most of the works that the uh, project is trying to seek restitution for, are they believed to be in Germany? Uh, the ones that show up on the art market um, are mostly on, on the German art market. Uh, you know, we have a number of, of paintings in museums. We recovered, how many recovered from German museums? I think three. And I have another, you know, half dozen plus, uh, thanks to this, uh, thanks to this uh, recent recommendation by the commission that uh, are at various stages of pursuit. Um, the Stern Gallery initially, as as Max Stern's father started it, was a gallery of German artists, various German schools of the uh, late 19th and early 20th century. Um, it is our sort of understanding that after Max uh, took over the gallery and possibly due uh, to the circumstances in the Nazi period and, and Stern sort of plans then to, to uh, leave the country and reestablish himself, um, you know, as an art dealer initially in London and then in Montreal, particularly in, Mon in London, where he... he was running a gallery, sort of shifted the inventory, that's our assumption, from German, you know, schools, German painters, more to um, Dutch old master paintings. And the gallery in London was purely a Dutch old master paintings gallery. So um, the, the German school paintings uh, from the period, you know, late, early, late 19th, early 20th century, um, mostly seem to show up on the German art market, and with German art market, I was at the German language, you know, somewhere between, let's say, Cologne and Vienna. Um, uh, their, their, their current, uh, you know, market value is, is often limited. I mean, paintings that used to, um, used to be highly appreciated be shortly before the war, uh, well, before the war and shortly after the, the war, um, you know, often do not carry, you know, high values. And so they show up in, in smaller auction houses, which of course is, is much more difficult to sort of, you know, uh, notice rather than a painting showing up at Christie's and Sotheby's. Um, while the Dutch old master paintings um, have a tendency to show up, you know, worldwide, as you can imagine, you know, a, a, a you know, a, a good Dutch old master painting can show up uh, in, in London, New York, or, or anywhere else. So, so there we we more so, um, you know, have to have sort of a global, uh, global approach at least as far as the European and North American um, or U.S. art market is uh, uh, is concerned. But, but obviously, you know, I cannot and we cannot constantly look at, at you know auction house websites. So, so that is one of the reasons why from the very beginning we try to be high profile. And celebrate every every you know recovery. Have press conferences, presentations, because we deliberately want to spread the word. We want to alert you know the 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 museums community, the, the dealers, the auction houses, the collectors um, that that you know we are here and and this is what 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 we're looking for. That's why we have a website. That's why we report these paintings to various other you know institutions and government agencies. And it has resulted in a number of cases uh, of, of us being approached by an auction house, by a, by a dealer, by a collector, 
and saying, listen, you know, I think, you know, I have a painting here um, that, that looks like a Stern painting. And then we are trying to, uh, depending on the circumstances, either come to some sort of settlement or, or recover the painting uh, outright. And that's them volunteering that information. And that how, how often does that happen? Well, obviously more more often with the trade, because obviously... Uh, in these days, uh, particularly, you know, the large auction houses um, do not want to, to simply put up a painting, uh, you know, for sale that has Mark Stern's provenance, um, since uh, uh, that usually doesn't work out so well. And if anything, you know, often creates sort of a, a media backlash. So so the, the, the trade, uh, you know, of course, you know, is interested in seeing... <laughs> Whether they can make a contribution to continue uh, for the painting to be to be sold, I mean that <laughs> that's their business. So um, depending on the circumstances, again, um, you know, and, and and depending on on the priorities of the Stern Foundation. Keep keep in mind the Stern Foundation is not uh, in, in in the business of sort of reassembling an art collection because after all, Max Stern was a dealer and not a collector. So um, unless the Stern Foundation, you know, wants to actually recover for whatever reasons, which, you know, will go beyond sort of my, my influence, wants to actually recover a painting for whatever reason, um, the Stern Foundation in the past has been, been willing to, you know, to settle certain cases where then a painting after, after you know, the settlement has been reached, um, continues to uh, be available for sale, and and you know very often since uh, usually as you know you don't get the name of the consigner or the person who wants to you know sell a painting, um, uh, so so that that's where the 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 auction house or the dealer has to come in in order to be the middle uh, person uh, to negotiate uh, you know a settlement or or, or a return. But um, again, um, you know, we try to be high profile and, and there were cases in the past where we used this in order to publicly shame in a couple of cases an auction house for for sort of not responding or, or ignoring us. Yeah. And I had seen where I believe it was at least one piece was uh, in the Netherlands that you were able to negotiate a successful, um, was it restitution or trade? Yeah, that was, that was a painting um, um, that the, the Dutch government had recovered after the war. And it was basically a broidal painting. Uh, it was held in trust, so to speak. Um, for for any kind of future restitution purpose, we knew it was with Stern's gallery in the mid 1930s. We had absolutely no idea how the painting then found its way into the Netherlands and was with a Dutch dealer um, in the early 1940s. Um, but we made a claim anyway, and I must say we were quite surprised at the time. Um, that the Dutch government, because again, you know, the painting was held by the Dutch government, decided to return uh, the painting to us. Now, um, you know, as I'm saying that, I also have to say that we have another Stern painting in a Dutch museum that sort of has a similar, similar, you know, history where we know very little, you know, in between, so to speak. Uh, we know when it was with Stern, uh, you know, in Dusseldorf in the mid-1930s, and then we sort of lose it until it shows up in the museum. Uh, that museum was approached several years ago and and simply rejected, uh, you know, our claim. Uh, and as I just read, uh, you know, uh, today and in the last few days, you may have seen it yourself, uh, the Dutch Restitution Commission, um, you know, uh, came under heavy criticism about the way they were handling uh, restitution claims over the last few years. And another commission was sort of reviewing the, the work of that commission and, and uh, the, the response of Dutch museums. And, um, and uh, uh, in, in their criticism, they say, listen, you know, we have, to, we have to be much more transparent and we have to pay much more attention to the, to the circumstances under which certain individuals 
you know, lost their works of art. Um, so I guess uh, that may be an invitation for us to to look at that uh, old claim again and and revive it and and see you know whether we get a different response this time. And the Dutch committee's chairman stepping down also. It'll be curious to see what kind of different uh, opinions are handed down by that commission with that many changes taking place. Yeah, I mean, the Dutch, <laughs> I will never forget that uh, uh, at the time of the Washington Conference, a little over 20 years ago, uh, where I was involved in the preparation and then, you know, uh, was around for the conference, um, you know, various... Uh, Various dele- members of various delegations introduced uh, themselves to me, and I will never forget the the Dutch uh, delegation was represented by a PR firm. So a couple of people approached me, and I thought, you know, they were dealing in provenance research, and you know, represented uh, Dutch government institutions or, or government agencies. No, but they gave me their business cards as as you know, members of a PR firm. So apparently the Dutch thought that this was just a little PR problem they had. Um, and of course, they learned differently subsequently. But from the Dutch, you can also see how after you know a, a promising and positive initial, uh, well, not initial approach, let's say after a false start uh, and, and the Dutch haven't learned you know, that they need to do better and, and doing better for some, some time, they sort of kind of fell back uh, into bad habits and came up with, with bad decisions and bad recommendations and bad arguments and for which they, they you know, had to be criticized again and, again, now have a committee to, you know, criticize, you know, the, the restitution committee, which, which shows you very nicely the point I was trying to, you know, make early on, that this is not something on autopilot. You cannot depend on this going on, you know, um, in the same manner that it was originally established or some good people, um, you know, how some good people initially handled it. Um, no, no, you, you always have to be vigilant. You always have to have to have to, you know, watch out where little sort of uh, counter arguments beginning to to sneak in, which like in the Dutch case and eventually, you know, take over basically the whole thing. And turn it into something, you know, completely, really unacceptable that that is not focused on returning things, but is really focused on keeping things. One of those points that I think has been implemented that to me seems unfair, but I'd like your thoughts, is this higher standard that seems to be applied to gallery owner owners versus collectors, and I, I sort of see why the distinction is made because galleries are in the business of making sales. But this idea that galleries like Gallery Stern would have been selling the paintings that they did from, say, 1933 forward under the Nazi regime, it's it's uh, it's too much of a presumption, don't you think, that um, the idea that all of these sales should be under such higher scrutiny? Well, uh, clearly, uh, uh, you know, within the world of Jewish victims of Nazi persecution when it comes to works of art, Jewish art dealers are the most challenging group because, as you said, they were not only, uh, you know, victims of Nazi persecution, you know, at, at one point, but they were in the business of selling works of art, um, which, of course, raises, you know, the question... When do we apply what in terms of their situation? And, and, and this always becomes very prominent, like in the Stern case, when Stern sold a painting, let's say, in 1935 to another Jewish client. And, and that Jewish client may have then subsequently lost the painting you know, under rather dramatic circumstances, including that Jewish client not surviving the Nazi period, then the argument, sort of the common sense argument is always made, well, how come that, that Stern, you know, Stern Foundation is claiming the painting because that Jewish client certainly um, was not, you know, uh, a prosec- persecuting, you know, Max Stern. But, but that's the wrong approach. The, the relationship is not between, as uh, I indicated early on with this litigation in Rhode Island, it's not between 
Stern, the seller, and Mr. X, the buyer, whether that was a high-ranking Nazi officer or, or a Jew, you know, who subsequently became a victim of Nazi persecution, him or herself, it is between Max Stern and the regime. That's the way to look at it. So, so we, we, we don't look at the clients. We look at Stern's situation as a German Jew. And as he experienced with his family various acts of persecution, and then we apply that to the way he was able, uh, you know, or not able to run his gallery. So in a sense, it doesn't really make a difference whether he was selling paintings or pairs of shoes. Now, obviously, you know, if he was selling pairs of shoes, we wouldn't pursuing the, be pursuing the shoes, uh, which is why, you know, this whole art restitution discussion it doesn't doesn't want to end because because if he was selling shoes, the shoes would be long gone. But the paintings are still around, and there really is no deadline, you know, for sort of this this particular aspect of of Nazi persecution and restitution. It theoretically can go on forever. I'm curious uh, with all of that as your focus, how you would view the role of the idea of justice within the project's restitution efforts? Well, um, I know it's a tough one. And going back to the Washington conference, one of the, one of the sort of thoughts that, that came up there and, and one of the sort of guiding principles was the, the situation of the two innocent victims, you know, the Max Stern, the victim of Nazi persecution and, and the current hold of a work of art as an innocent as an innocent buyer of a of a work of art, um, yes, that that's certainly true, uh, and I don't ever blame you know anybody uh, who is currently uh, caught, so to speak, with a work of art, whether it's a curator or a dealer or a collector. Um, obviously, uh, you know what matters is is what's in between, and what's in between is often a big void. Because the art world, and, and including, you know, uh, the art historical scholarship for decades didn't give a damn about provenance, you know, or, or, or simply ignored it, even if they did know it. Um, and, and you can go back to, to, you know, auction catalogs from the 70s and 80s and, and probably earlier period, where, and we've, we've seen this, where a painting is being sold um, you know, uh, with Max Stern and the provenance, and it didn't bother anybody. So it raises a question, you know, who's supposed to take take the blame, you know, for what happened after 1945? And, well, I mean, as I said earlier on, now the trade is often, often coming to us, you know, on their own because they don't want to sell anything or offer anything that has Max Stern in the provenance, Back then, that was not the case. It raises the question, well, uh, should people have been more diligent at a time when due diligence in, in that sense really, you know, wasn't part of the discussion? It's, uh, you know, sometimes it, that leads to a, a, a very tense, you know, dialogue, uh, undoubtedly. Uh, sometimes, you know, there's a great deal of understanding and and sometimes uh, you know it it leads to a compromise, but um, all I can say in the end it, it it really is a is a is a new round of of exchanging arguments trying to convince you know um, all parties concerned uh, you know over and over again it it is it is not something where I can say okay I have my set of arguments you know, in the drawer, and whenever a new painting pops up, you know, I just pull those out, and, and they work, you know, like a charm every time, you know, I, I, I apply them. No, it's, it, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a new discussion, uh, it's, it's a new sense of, of uh, you know, questions, of, of complaints, uh, or of understanding, um, you know, each time uh, a new case is, is opened up and and uh, listen. I, I have I have uh, you know a number of paintings um, where a private collector would approach us and simply didn't like the discussion and and uh, and would you know simply simply disappear again. And I have no way of 
pursuing it. There are a number of paintings uh, that showed up uh, in, in, in some German auction houses where the consigner simply withdrew uh, the painting. And of course, I have no way of pursuing that because you know the auction house wouldn't give me any information uh, pertaining to uh, uh, pertaining to the consigner. And even if the painting is in, on, on on Interpol, German law enforcement wouldn't pursue them like they would do in the United States. Um, so so uh, listen, um, you know, I I like to talk about the success stories, but I have a, a considerable loss. Um, list of um, of paintings that we uh, that we not only pursued but were in some sort of dialogue in or initial dialogue, and we subsequently lost the painting again because the other side simply simply um, you know wasn't interested in a dialogue like the uh, you know the Sicilian uh, coastline painting where you know as as we discussed the the collector simply is not interested in in uh, in having any dialogue with us so it's you know, um, it, it cuts both ways. Another important aspect of restitution that I'd read you had discussed was giving historical perspective and context. I was curious for the works that you have recovered or are in the works of recovering for the Max Stern project, um, what you have seen as far as the historical perspective and context that that the collectors that he was working with weren't just decorating their homes, as you put it, but they were patrons of art in Europe. Uh, have you uh, any thoughts on that? Well, uh, as, as you may know, know, besides the Stern Art Restitution Project, there's also a scholarly project, which is the Stern Corporation Project, which is a German-Canadian-Israeli um, research project that has nothing to do with restitution, but is looking at, at the Stern family, at the Stern Gallery, focused on the Nazi period. So one thing that, again, considering how the Stern Foundation is set up, how the restitution project is set up, that is important to me, not just in the Stern case, but in all those cases, that that the that the uh, the interest and the effort is not limited to the restitution aspect, but that uh, the restitution story is as a starting point to look at that biography, to look at that history, and and to bring it back to life. Because again, when I was asked to look at the Stern story twenty years ago, I knew nothing. Uh, the city of Düsseldorf knew nothing. There was basically nobody out there. Um, you know, who could provide me with any information on anything pertaining to Stern's history in Düsseldorf. Now, you know, um, uh, half of the world sort of knows about Max Stern. So so to me, that is long-term probably more important um, than, than the question of how many paintings, you know, we will be re- recovering uh, over the next, I don't know, 5, 10, 15 years, be- because then it, it, it helped bring back something that, on the one hand, is, is of course, completely gone. I mean, Stern, the Stern family is gone from Dusseldorf. The gallery is gone from Dusseldorf. On top of it, it was completely forgotten for decades. And, and to sort of have it brought back to life, to have it introduced into the overall discussion, and that is, you know, from my point of view, applies to all other German collectors curators, uh, you know, uh, and dealers uh, that, that were Jewish and contributed, you know, on various levels to, to, to Germany's and Europe's cultural life, um, you know, until the Nazis came along and messed it all up. And, and as we know, they messed it up for good. Yes, a Wildenstein came back, a Rosenberg came back, but many, many others, you know, never came back. And, 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 and they left behind a big void and and to to fill that that historical gap, not with restitution stories in the end, but with with life stories, with biographies, with with stories on their contribution. That that is sort of what is is important to me, long term. The work you are doing and you've been doing for decades, and uh, before the project and with this project 
to revive lost legacies and to raise awareness about these issues and to change policy. It's invaluable. So thank you. Yeah, and I can only encourage people like you to keep up the good work because, again, we need to continue to tell the stories and remind the people, you know, what was once there and is now lost. There will be a link in the show notes to learn more about the Max Stern Art Restitution Project. If you enjoyed this podcast, it would be much appreciated if you could leave a rating or review and tag Warfare of Art and Law podcast. You can also email your comments to stephanie at warfareofartandlaw.com. Until next time, this is Stephanie Drotty bringing you Warfare of Art and Law. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. What are your plans for the second Saturday of this month? Perhaps consider joining in for a discussion about art, culture, and social issues. Hi everyone, it's Stephanie, and every second Saturday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, I host the Second Saturday Art and Justice Gathering, an online call that explores a range of topics, from artists who might inspire to legal decisions that might infuriate all with the aim of sparking dialogue about social justice and promoting creative thinking. If interested, please email me at stephanie at warfareofartandlaw.com.